Welcome to the Old Bridge Baptist Church podcast. We hope you find the following sermon to be edifying for your walk with the Lord. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page. You can also visit our website at obb.church for more info. Now here's the sermon. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, I mean that. It's a, it's a pleasure to be able to take the Word of God and to preach and teach. Um, as Harry said, um, we served in Ireland for 19 years. I, my last church I pastored for 15 years. So he's used to being in the pulpit every week. And uh, we resigned from our mission board uh, in March 2020. And so to be able to get in and, and preach God's word um, is a great blessing and privilege. So I, I counted the privilege to come. Um, I want to thank, um, I thought the reading of God's word and the prayer gave great um, reverence to God today. So I thank, thank you for that. It was... Uh, it's very encouraging to me. I'm going to have you turn your Bibles with, to a very familiar chapter today, Isaiah 53. Let me wish every father out there a happy Father's Day. Um, and our Father, God the Father, gave His Son to come to the earth and die on a cross. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And if you think about it as a father and as a parent, I think you would rather take the place of your son dying that horrific death. So in some ways, it was more difficult for God the Father than it was for God the Son to allow him to go through that. But he loved the world so much, he did that. Isaiah 53 is a very popular passage of Scripture in the Bible. Its prophecy is so accurate that when textual criticism hit the Western world in particular in the 1900s, they began to attack the validity of the scriptures. Because this prophecy was so accurate, they doubted that Isaiah really wrote that, this prophecy, uh, so many years, like 700 years, seven to 800 years prior to the coming of Christ. And because the church did not have a copy of the book of Isaiah. That criticism began to pick up speed. There's no way that this was written before the time of Christ because the prophecy is so accurate. But then in the 1940s, when a shepherd boy was playing in the Middle East, he stumbled into a cave and he broke some clay pots and in the clay pots there was something called the Dead Sea Scrolls that was perfectly preserved and in the Dead Sea Scrolls there is a copy of the book of Isaiah nearly the, nearly the entire book perfectly preserved and they brought an expert in someone who was uh, an expert in languages. And when he looked at the book and the scroll and he studied the languages, he said it predated the birth of Christ by at least 200 years. Now, if that was something to support evolution, 
It would be any in every university in the world. And it would be lifted up as great proof. But because it's the scriptures, of course it's not. But nonetheless, it shows the truth and authenticity of the word of God. Isaiah was a prophet to Judah at a very difficult time. Uh, he, he was a prophet for about 62 years from the late uh, 700 B.C. Um, all the way into the uh, end of the 600 B.C. During his time, there is great apostasy in Judah and there is great apostasy in Samaria, which is the capital of the ten northern tribes. All you have to do is read Isaiah chapter 1 and you'll see how bad it was. The people had forsaken the law of God, were worshipping idols, and even worshipping the idol Molech, which demanded children to be sacrificed. They had an iron statue with the arms out, and they would heat that statue to not red hot, but white hot, and they would toss the children into the arms of that statue. That's what God was watching for numerous years, and finally had enough. And in 722 B.C., Isaiah being alive, he would see the Assyrians destroy Samaria and the ten northern tribes. The apostasy spread very strongly in Judah as well. Judah and Benjamin were the only two tribes left, and Judah, of course, was where Jerusalem was. And that apostasy spread there so bad that God allowed Sennacherib to take his troops and capture all of Judah and surround Jerusalem in 701 B.C. Both Isaiah and 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings give you a testify of that story. And in the British Museum, and I saw a copy of this, it also testifies from Assyrian's point of view. When Sennacherib said that he had King Hezekiah trapped like a bird in a cage as he surrounded Jerusalem, and that's when God stepped in and an angel of God struck, I think, 180 or 185,000 of the troops. Now, that wasn't in Assyria's uh, uh, history because they only like to give good history, you know, not the negative history, but it's recorded in the scriptures. So Isaiah saw all this. Isaiah also prophesied some of the famous scriptures that we know. Isaiah 7, 14, speaking of the virgin birth of Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, 6, prophesying of Christ coming as a king. Isaiah chapter 11, very powerful passage, speaking of Christ being the king, coming to this earth, setting up his kingdom, destroying the enemies of Israel. So the Jews would have been familiar with the fact that there is a king coming, a descendant of David, who is going to set up his kingdom in his throne. That had been prophesied. It was also prophesied, as our brother read today, accurately stating that it pointed to the cross, that there is this king coming that would destroy the enemies of Israel and set up his kingdom, but also this suffering servant that would die for the Jews. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, it alluded to that. The whole sacrificial system alluded to the fact that a Messiah was going to come 
and die for the nation, for the people, because of their sins. In fact, John the Baptist knew this. That's why he said in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So you have pictured in the Old Testament this king that will set up his throne in Israel and this servant that will die for the sins of Israel. And when Christ came to the earth and came to the Jews, they wanted this, this king to set up his servant and defeat the Rome, Romans, but they wanted no part of repentance and this suffering servant. And Isaiah 53 really nails it because it, pre it speaks of the suffering servant, but also the triumphant king. It points to the death of Christ, the vicarious death of Christ. He died in our place. But it also points to the resurrection of Christ and the triumph of Christ. And, I, and alludes to the changed life of those that trust him. Very powerful portion of scripture. I'm going to have seven points today about this. First of all, Jesus Christ was not attractive. There is nothing physically that you could look at with Christ and say, wow, there's the Messiah. Nothing attractive about him at all. And the movies that have him with the long hair and the, and the blue eyes and the handsome looking face, um, that's not the picture in the scriptures. In fact, I think we're going to be very surprised when we see Christ face to face. He was rejected. Some of us have been rejected from time to time. He was rejected. So we can come to him and relate to him. He was lonely as well. Christ was lonely. He was at that cross and through his trial alone. People had departed from him. And so when we're lonely and when we struggle, we can come to Christ. He was grieved over the plight of man. Jesus Christ did not live in a cave apart from men and apart from the problems of humanity. He was mixed in with people and it grieved him as he saw the plight of man. He died vicarious for us. We'll see that as well as a substitute. He died for our sins, not for his own sins. He died, um, he was, he was, uh, he died violently. Jesus Christ died a violent death. It's the only way for man to be saved. No person will ever go to heaven apart from placing their faith in a finished work of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to go to heaven. His violent death points to that truth. But then he rose victoriously from the grave, triumphant. And we'll see today that he had great joy in even going to the cross because of our repentance and our trusting him as Savior. That, in one sense, in a sense, is the thing that gave him the strength to keep at it, knowing that we would be saved 
and that we would have a relationship with him. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we look at this very powerful passage of scripture today, we pray that this message would influence us. Influence us, first of all, to have a greater love, a greater loyalty, a greater reverence towards you and towards the Lord Jesus Christ for what he endured for us. We pray also, Lord, as we see his grief and his loneliness and the fact that he was forsaken, that we would be a people that would want to come to him with all of our problems, knowing that we will see grace and mercy from you. We pray also, Lord, seeing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead victorious, that we would live the victorious Christian life over fear, over sin, and over this world. So, Father, speak to us, challenge us, and encourage us, and most of all, hide me behind the cross, and we pray that Jesus' name would be lifted up. And in his name we pray. Amen. He wasn't attractive. The world puts so much stock on physical attributes today. And popularity oftentimes comes because of physical attributes in some way, shape, or form, whether that's talents or sports or arts or physical appearance. But there wasn't anything attractive about Jesus Christ. In verse 1 it says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? Remember we talked about the prophecies. Who has believed that Jesus is the Messiah? In this context, who has believed that Jesus is going to die on the cross? Because salvation has always been through faith and not by works. Even Abraham believed when his account at righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, Romans chapter 4, 1 and following. So who has, it all comes down to pistuo. Do we put our trust in Christ or do we put our trust in our own efforts? Who has believed or who has rejected? That's the, the million dollar question, isn't it? Because those that have believed, those of us that have put our trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus Christ, have a relationship with him, we have our sins for, for, forgiven and a home in heaven. But those who do not believe, they may believe, yes, Jesus Christ existed. Yes, Jesus Christ walked on this earth. Yes, Jesus Christ died on the, on, on the cross. But I have to do something to earn my way to heaven. That's unbelief. Who has believed this report that you've heard? And, who, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God's arm, God's power. It means this truth is hard to grasp. It means that God has to be the one that draw people to himself. No man comes to me in John 6 unless the Father draws him. That word draw is to drag like fish in a net. To drag somebody to Christ. You got saved because God dragged you to Jesus Christ. Who has believed? He wasn't attractive in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant like a root out of dry ground. If you were walking along and there is dry parched ground and there is just this root or sticking 
out of the ground. There wouldn't be anything that you would look at and say, oh, that's very attractive. That's the picture of Christ. You might see roses or lilies or other flowers and say, that's attractive. But that's not the appearance of Jesus Christ. There's nothing attractive about Jesus Christ. He was just a, 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 a very common, ordinary person that you would see. Like a, a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Again, the pictures in Hollywood of the long flowing hair, the well-cut beard, and the blue eyes is not the picture the Bible gives of Christ. He was not attractive. There was nothing about him, nothing about his personality, nothing physically that you would draw you to him. So when the world tells us that that's important, remember, it's not important. It's vain. It's fading away. Secondly, he was rejected. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. Not always rejected, but he was despised. There was a great disdain from the world. Was Christ popular? Yes and no. He was popular because of the, the miracles he was performed. I mean, he raised people from the dead. People that were uh, going to uh, the funeral were raised from the dead. He fed people. He healed people. He gave sight to people. Yes, that would make you popular because people wanted that to happen to them. But did people follow him? Not many. Not many. In fact, even his disciples rejected him at the end. So he was rejected. When he went to that trial, he went to that trial alone. When he was on the cross, his disciples thought they backed a loser. They thought he was going to come in and usher the kingdom in. They didn't want anything to do with a suffering servant. In fact, he told his disciples, you're going to reject me. And after reject me, meet me in Galilee. Shows his love, his understanding, his forgiveness, his long suffering, which what we have to do as well. Some of us have been let down by people. And perhaps you're here today and say, I struggle because at the time of my greatest need, this person let me down. And I would point you to Jesus Christ because no one was let down more than him. Even God the Father rejected him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet Jesus Christ forgave all those Paul, in his moment of his greatest need in his trial, said, No man stood with me. So I would encourage you, if people have let you down and hurt you, forgive, just as God has forgiven us. And guess what else? There's times where we're going to let people down as well, aren't we? We will. We have. I have, for sure. He was rejected. He was lonely. Jesus Christ walked 
a lonely life. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one for whom men, look at this, hid their faces. He was a lonely man. The people he ministered to and healed oftentimes didn't even thank him. Think of the ten lepers. Were not ten healed? But only one has returned. It wasn't like they loved Jesus for who he was and to follow him for who he was. It's like they loved Jesus for what he could give them. Was basically what it was. There were some, again, a remnant. But as a whole, Jesus Christ was lonely. He died lonely. He was forsaken. And so when we're lonely, when we struggle with loneliness, perhaps a lost spouse, understand in Hebrews chapter 4, that's why I had Brother Mark read that today, is that we can come to the throne of grace and find grace and mercy in the time of need. I love that passage. You find grace and mercy. You come before the throne of grace and find grace and mercy. And we have a high priest that walked this earth and lived this worth in this world and all the temptations and all the hardship that we face, he faced, and even worse. Because being God, he could handle a lot because he couldn't sin. So his temptations and his hardship was so much greater and harder than ours. I mean, when he went in the wilderness, was led by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, he fasted 40 days and then was offered bread. How cruel. How cruel. So he knows. So he was a man that was, he was rejected. He was a man that was lonely. He was a man that was grieved at the plight of mankind. Did we struggle sometimes at that? Looking at the news, seeing the violence. Our tendency is to go away. But that wasn't Christ. In verse 3, when it says, this is where I get it from. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. When I studied this passage, I went through studied. I tried to break down the Greek as best I or excuse me, the Hebrew as best I could. I had one year of Hebrew. Best I could, using the helps. And then I listened to a sermon. Um, there's a guy by the name of James White, who is uh, an apologetic. Very good one, by the way. And he had a man on his show, and the man was uh, an expert at Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. And he went down and broke the passage down, Isaiah 53. And I sat there and I listened very carefully just to make sure I lined up if I missed something. This is the one thing that stood out that I, that I, that I missed. That word grief means, means grief over the plight of human beings. He was grieved because he mixed with people and he saw the hardship. He saw the sin against one another. He saw the disease and the difficulties people had to go through. And that gave him grief. Remember Christ when on the on the, uh, the triumphant entry, on Palm Sunday, when everybody was cheering for him because they were thinking he was the political messiah and he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire, but they had missed it. He already said that I'm going to the cross, 
I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. I've rejected Israel because they've rejected me. And then he looked at Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits up on a hill. And he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. He didn't just have a tear in his eye. Not just a trickle. The Jewish people are very emotional people. He wailed and wept because he knew it was going to happen. Because they didn't understand the day of his visitation, which I think is an allusion to Daniel chapter 9, which is a precise prophecy saying when Christ was going to come. And because they rejected Christ as the Messiah, they would now pay a price. Remember when, when Pilate, he tried to get Christ acquitted because he knew he wasn't guilty? And Pilate said, I washed my hands to him. And they said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Oh, how horrible. Because in 70 AD, Jesus Christ knew that Titus was going to come. The general of the Roman Empire. And he was going to level the walls of Jerusalem. He picked that, that, those walls apart stone by stone, starved the people first, and then leveled them. And Jesus Christ knew what was going to happen. And so, grief. And so when we struggle with the plight of the state of loved ones and friends and our world, understand we have a high priest that understands so much more than we do. And at those times, we can come to him and find grace and mercy in our time of need. He died vicariously. He died vicariously, number five. In other words, he died on that cross, not for his sins, but for our sins. The vicarious death of Christ in the nine passages, chapter, or verse 4 to verse 12, Nine verses, 12 times the Bible speaks of the vicarious death of Christ. The Jews try to say that this was, speaks, this passage speaks of the nation of Israel. Some other Jews say this passage speaks of the remnant of Israel who suffered. But notice through this passage that it continues to state third person, he, not them, he, not it, he died on that cross. In verse 4 it says this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The idea of griefs and sorrows, it, it actually, um, the grief there can actually point to um, physical infirmities. But I think in this context, and I, we'll see that more in verse 5, I think it's speaking more of our spiritual infirmities and the sorrows associated with that. There are great sorrows associated with sin. The drunken husband causes great sorrow in his family because of sin. The drunken person behind the wheel that crashes into a family causes great sorrow because of the sin. Yet we esteem him stricken by God and afflicted talk about that in a second look at verse 5 again the vicarious death of Christ for our sins but he was pierced for our transgressions our sins 
our mishaps. That's why Christ died on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. He, 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 for us, for us, for us, thy vicarious death of Christ on the cross for our sins prophesied so very clearly and accurately over 700 years prior to what happened. And again, that's why the skeptics, when higher criticism rolled out in 19th century, they said, well, show us, show us, because we only have a copy. How do we know that copy is true? And years later, God would do it, wouldn't he? Now, they did have, by the way, they did have the Septuagint, which was, was uh, written in the second and third century B.C., which was the uh, Greek version of the Old Testament. So they did have that as well. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. God's chastening, wrathful hand is the thing that brings us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Healed what? Healed spiritually. For those of us that understand that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we trust him as our savior, all of our hope placed on him, just like when you sat in that chair. You know it's gonna support you, you believe it's gonna support you, but until you sit in it, you're not exercising biblical faith, bestow putting all of your weight in Christ, in Christ alone. Peace. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles with me, if you would, and this, I think this is the only time I can actually have you turn maybe one other time but John chapter 3 we're familiar with John 3 16 but sometimes we miss the other passages verses 17 and 18 now I'm talking about peace Jesus Christ it tells us in verse 5 upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace peace with God the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, and get this, because most churches don't, before we got saved, you were an enemy of God. Do you know that? And you know also that a person, God is not a universal father. He's not the father of the unsaved. The unsaved are the enemy of God. Now, he wants them to get saved. But he's the Father when we receive Christ as Savior. Now look at this in John 3.16, passage we're familiar with, no doubt. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's interesting that word believe is in the present. I think it's a present participle. So it's actually believing. The person who is presently placing their trust right now today, what is your trust in? If you are placing your trust in Christ and Christ alone apart from your works, that's who it's speaking about. Believing. Currently believing. When we believed, heirs tense, we believed, past tense, there was a moment in time we believed, we became believers because God keeps us believers. Some people profess to believe but departed from that. I had a brother. Prayed a very sincere prayer, wept the whole thing, and departed from that. Wasn't truly a believer. So we always say when somebody says they get saved, I say they made a profession of faith. A parable sower says there's three professions of faith, but one that was only true, and time reveals that. But nonetheless, it says this. Verse 17. 
For God did not send his world into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And you see people say that all the time. Yeah, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Jesus isn't judging me. Now look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You see, the person that has never placed their trust in Jesus Christ is under the condemnation of God and the judgment of God. The reason Jesus didn't come into the world to judge the world is because the world is already judged. It's in condemnation. Jesus came on the cross to die on the cross to save the world. But only those that trust him as their personal Lord and Savior are the ones that are lifted out of the condemnation of God. And so in, as we go back to Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 5, when it says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We now have peace with God when we trust Christ as our Savior. And the only way a person will ever have peace with God is through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John 14, 6. There is no name under heaven given to man except for Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, 12. And so the vicarious death of Christ. Number six, he died violently. Jesus Christ died violently. I don't think, now maybe I'm wrong on this, this is just my opinion. When I read through the end of the Gospels, I struggle reading through what Christ went through. I Honestly, I just skim through it. I just struggle with it. And I would imagine those that were writing that probably struggled a whole lot more. And I don't think we, ha we don't even have the half of what Jesus Christ went through, of the beating that he took. When Pilate spoke, when, when the word was given to Pilate that Christ had died, he was surprised that he had died so soon. I think that attributes to the beating that he took. Jesus would have been a carpenter, um, 33 years old, he would have been a strong man, I believe, at, at that time. He was beaten so bad. It was only his determination and the grace of God that got him to that, that cross, I believe. Now, it's alluded to this in this passage. And look in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This was another thing that was beneficial to me listening to the Hebrew scholars. I went through this passage. Uh, that word crushed is the strongest Hebrew word that could be written to talk about the physical pain that was inflicted on Christ. And that's why they, the, the, the authors here of, of the ESV wrote the word crushed because that's probably the strongest English word that you can put. But he was not just crucified he was beaten, battered, and crushed violently. The Bible says in verse 9, as we skip down, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Interesting that the wicked speaks of that he, he died with a, a thief on each side of him. who actually were murderers, so he died with the wicked. The place of skull means where he died the place of the wicked, so he died with the wicked. And yet, interesting, the precision of this, this prophecy, the rich man, Joseph Arimathea, he, he brought the body to his tomb. 
But that word death there in the original language, again, my Hebrew scholar friend points out that that word is in the plural, which intensifies. It points to the fact that it was a violent death that he suffered. Interesting where it says in verse 9, although he had done no violence, Christ had done no violence, Christ had committed no sin, but yet he suffered the violent death. His death was violent. Probably the strongest support for that goes back to the previous chapter in chapter 52, verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred behind human semblance and his form behind that of the children of mankind. When I listened to the Hebrew scholar, he said his face was so battered and beaten, you couldn't recognize that he was a human being. You couldn't, you couldn't determine whether this was a man or a woman or even human or even some kind of animal if you just looked at the face. That's how badly Christ was beaten. And some will teach and say, yes, Jesus died for our sins, but there's many ways to heaven. Or yes, Jesus died for our sins, but we have to procure our way to heaven. You think he would have taken such a beaten, brutal death if there was another way to heaven? And when Jesus was in Gethsemane and he, he was sweating blood and he was struggling because he knew what he faced. Father, take this cup away from me if it's possible. But not my will, your will. What was all that about? It was showing that it wasn't possible. This is the only way to reconcile sinful man to a holy God. There's no other way. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, I think it was verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. Why did Jesus suffer such a brutal death if you could earn your way to heaven? What was the point? It's the only way. It's the only way to reconcile. And then we, we end on a very positive note. He rose again victoriously. Does the Bible speak of the death and resurrection in the Old Testament? Yes. Clearly right here it does. Look at verse, we'll go back to verse 8. The death, he died and he was raised from the dead. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, which probably, by the way, is, is allusion to the kangaroo court that he stood and, and, and secondly, it was his time. He voluntarily gave himself up. There was many times the Pharisees wanted to kill him. Jesus Christ was, an, was, was innocent. He was innocent, but he wasn't helpless. He's the one that put himself on that cross. He said it. He said, I willingly go to the cross. And I will raise myself from the dead. Go through John chapter 10, I think verses 16, 17, 18, around there. He's the one who put himself on the cross. But anyway, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? A couple of things we want to look at, and I, and I forgot about this, and I want us to, I want us to scan back to, to verse uh, 4 for a second. We'll come back here for a second. 
In verse 40, when it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You know what that means? When Jesus hung on that cross, the people thought he's on that cross for his own sins. He's a phony. And that's why he's on the cross. And that's why it says, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That's why they wagged their heads at him. That's why they mocked him. You're up there for yourself. It's your sins. The only two people I, I can say definitively from the scriptures that understood differently was the one of the thieves on the cross, because he believed, and the centurion who's, who made that statement. Other than that, we can't definitively say, uh, uh, you know, probably, probably Mary understood, Mary the, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, but his disciples didn't get it. They didn't get it. Now, go back to our passage here in, um, in verse 8. Remember, we're talking about the death and, and, and resurrection. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and for his generation. And then it says a question, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. You see that it says cut off of the land of the living? That means you're dead. He was cut off. He was, the idea there is that he, he died before his time. He was only 33. He wouldn't have died. He didn't die naturally. He died because he was executed before his time. But he was cut off from the land of the living. He died is the idea. Who considered that? Again, it's, who, who knew that? Who understood that he was dying on that cross? For our sins. Mary? Who else? I don't know. Not many. Who considered it? Stricken for the transgression of the people. He was stricken. He was killed. Again, vicariously. And they made his grave with the wicked. The grave. He was cut off from the land of the living. And he was placed in a grave. So he was clearly executed. Put in a grave, as we saw and with a rich man in his death, although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put in the grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He, now look at this, he shall see his offer, his offspring. Now he was killed, but then he's going to see his offspring. How's that possible? Because he was raised from the dead. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, it talks about him enduring the cross for joy. Why? What joy did he have? Because this offering would bring an offspring. What offspring? Us, believers, those that have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And when God sees a person turn from sin and put their trust in Christ, there's joy in the presence of angels. Because God sings in the presence of the angel. When you got saved, he sings in the presence of the angel. Could you imagine what that sounds like? There's joy there. But the point is, is that he sees his offspring. He's raised from the dead. And it says again this. He shall prolong his days. Wait a minute. He was cut off. Yes. But he was resurrected. You see, Isaiah 53 not only points to the death of Christ but the resurrection of Christ. He was raised from the dead on the third day. And then it says, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He was prosperous. He died on the cross. He rose again. 
people come to him and are saved. He sits at the right hand of the Father. In verse 12, it says he makes intercessions. How can he make intercessions if he wasn't alive? This passage points to that. He will come again. He will set up his kingdom. He will defeat the enemies of Israel next time. Revelation chapter 19, verses 10 and following. He will be prosperous. And so the death, the suffering, yes, but the vit victorious resurrection from the dead. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, the anguish of his soul, the hardship he faced, the death of his cross, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That word satisfied means, I looked at, what, what I did is I just did a word search on that word. And most of the time that's, that's translated as filled up. He will be filled up with joy. Why? Because he sees people coming to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says, God saved you to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ, to have a close, intimate relationship with Christ. How are we doing with that? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, although Jesus Christ suffered, although Jesus Christ was lonely, although Jesus Christ re rejected, Hebrews chapter 1, I think it's around verses 8 to 10, tell us that he was, uh, had more joy or was more glad or was more uh, happy than his companions. Jesus Christ was not a gloomy person to walk the earth. He was happy. He was joyful. The Bible tells us in John chapter 15, 11, that when we are in fellowship with Jesus Christ, our joy is complete or overflowing. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verses 4, the same idea. When we're in fellowship with him, our joy is overflowing. Even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of difficulties, we can have great joy. And the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that the more hardship we face, the more grace God will pour out on us. So we can have that intimate relationship with God. That's what Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 3. He talked about the, the uh, closeness, verses 3 through verses 8 through 14, the closeness with God. The, 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 the suffering that he went through was turned to joy because of the closeness, the intimacy that that trial brought him to. If we're suffering through a trial right now, God is allowing that trial because he wants you to draw into a more intimate relationship with him. He endured that cross. He had joy uh, looking towards that cross because of you. And I believe if you were the only person ever to live or ever to take Christ as Savior, he still would have went through that. Intimately wants an intimate relationship with you. He endured that cross because of you. Because he knew that when he died on that cross, that you were going to get saved. And he loves you so much that he will allow trials in our lives because this world is so distracting, isn't it? We live in a church, I think, and it's not even our fault, the church of Laodicea, because we have everything at our fingertips. God sends trials because he says, hey, I love you, and I am the best thing for you. And so Isaiah 53, although written over 700 years ago, speaks to us, or sorry, over 2,700 years ago, 700 years before the time of Christ, speaks to us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great truth of this passage. 
And I pray, Lord, that you will take it and apply the things that you have put on my heart today to each person. You are a personal God. And I believe the Spirit of God is speaking to people today. And I pray that we would do business because the best thing for us is a close walk with you. And Father, we thank you. Thank you for this church. We pray, Lord, that you would bring the right man in the right time to this flock. And we know you will. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old Bridge Baptist Church. Please consider subscribing to our podcast on the platform that you're currently listening on. We appreciate your support and we hope you have a God-blessed day.